He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. Triple Threat Podcast, coming to you live from the brand new podcasting studios of Chad in Bealton, Virginia. It's episode number 51 of the Triple Threat Podcast. If you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, if you didn't know that. And I'm always joined on the two-man power trip by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And on this show, we are joined by the captain of our team, the one and only franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane Welcome to episode number 51, one week away from a big one-year anniversary. You know, it's been a long time since I've had an anniversary, so I'm, I'm pretty excited looking forward to next week. Uh, let's go back for a second. Did you say Bealton or Bealtown? It's Bealton, and the locals call it, like, Bealton. Like, they say it really fast, but it's Bealton, Virginia. So, uh, or they say okay. Bealton, that's what they say. But I'm here, Bealton, Virginia. Because that's really close uh, to Beale Town, and of course, you know Beale is a, a wrestling move scantily seen these days. But uh, taking somebody like a hip toss out of a turnbuckle would be called a Beale. Ah. And uh, so you live in. We'll just call it Beale Town. I'll call we'll it. Rename it. Yeah, Beale Town. It's uh, it's way out there. I mean, it's you know, we're still about an hour and fifteen minutes from Washington, which I was about forty-five minutes, so I moved. About thirty minutes west, and it's uh, it's a lot different for a Jersey guy like me. But I love it. I love standing out like a sore thumb and rubbing people the wrong way. So I uh, I couldn't be any happier. Podcast <laughs> for that then, because it seems like it's something uh, that that uh, runs uh, consistently through the at least two of the three members here. We'd have to let JP talk uh, talk more on that if, if he does it. Do you rub people the wrong way, JP? Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> there it is, hundred <laughs> percent. The, the, the podcast remains uh, true to its form. <laughs> we rub people the wrong way. <laughs> oh yeah, well that's why that's why we got such great chemistry, and that's why we're one year in the making. Fifty-two episodes next week. It's uh, it's so cool to see because we've done so much in a year. We've covered so many great topics. I mean, and still not even scratching the surface in terms of your career because. We've taken so many detours, and we've talked about some big moments. We talked about some huge matches, and obviously milestones that you reached. But 
there's been so many other stories that we've talked about, and it's been so cool to take a, uh, a walk into that side of either wrestling or entertainment or politics or whatever we've done. It's been cool to get your take on so many things, Shane. I think the listeners that we've heard from and listeners that do consume this show every week, they really appreciate all the work that you do put in and uh, and giving us this show every single week on uh, Triple Threat Podcast. Well, it's given me a great outlet, you know, topics that I can talk about, things that uh that I'm passionate about, uh, you know, and you know, you don't typically in wrestling interviews just about political views or uh, things from your educational background. Uh, so th- this for me has been, you know, a- an awful lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to the next year because, uh, like you said, we it, we've taken so many different twists and turns and uh, different avenues. It, it's it, you know, like the news should write itself. Uh, <laughs> fake news not so much anymore but you know this show pretty much writes itself because it's you know there's always topics coming up every week uh the wrestling industry is constantly in a state of flux uh always something going on hey did you hear about so and so or uh whatever scuttlebutt is is going on in the business this week uh so it really is an unlimited uh well of stories to cover and and uh you know then on top of all that you know, uh, ask franchise anything, and and there's a there's an awful lot of history uh, there as well. You know, having such a long career, so having a lot of fun. I'm looking to the next 52. Absolutely, yeah, and we'll talk about that more obviously as we get into this episode. But we want to give a little bit of a recap from this past weekend. We were all converging on Monroe, New Jersey, for the Legends of the Ring convention. It's the one of the premier conventions in the wrestling business for the, uh, the, the the fans to come and have meet and greets and photo ops and all the great stuff that you can do at a wrestling convention as well as see all the vendors and the merchandise. And I don't know why, this one in particular was one of my favorites, I think, that we have done together. And I, I don't know if it was just because we had such a, uh, uh, just a fun-paced day. It was a good pacing. Uh, it was a great crowd. I mean, from start to finish, we were busy all day, and we got to have a lot of time. Uh, to chat with the fans and chat with a couple of the wrestlers that were coming by. And our little table that we had with the three of us had Jerry the King Lawler at it as well. So a lot of great interactions with the King. And we saw uh, Devin uh, Hannibal Nicholson from Canada came down and was filming an interview. So it was so much encompassed in this weekend. And also both of us, John and I, getting to meet Dominic Danucci for the first time. Shane, it was a great weekend overall. I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. But I had a great time. I know, John, you had a great time as well. Yeah, I, I had an awesome time. It was, you know, with the, uh, like you said, the, the guy, for those, you know, I always tell the fans, for, for wrestlers, conventions like that are sort of a family reunion. You know, there some people you don't see, you know, for years on end, and others you see every other week, but you get a chance to catch up. Like, for instance, right across from us sitting at Dominic's table, uh, Jose Luis Rivera, I hadn't seen him, uh, honestly, 25 or 30 years, maybe longer. Uh, I can't remember the last time I saw him, but he looked great. Uh, you know, it was just really good to catch up with him again and, you know, taking a quick walk through the room and, you know, same with Dr. D. David Schultz, you know, another guy who was there on the first day of my career, uh, professional career. Uh, and I hadn't seen him since after that until this past weekend. So, you know, like a hell of a bookend. I hope it doesn't mean like I'm going to be dying soon or something because you you have this bookend of all this in between in this career and these guys that were in the business and, uh, you know, 
fairly well-known names in the business uh, when I came in. And now seeing them all these years later, and uh, you guys can verify to the listeners out there, uh, Dominic Zanucci at 86 years old, still spry as, as, as you know somebody half his age, uh, still sharp with attack, uh, and really had a, uh, a great time there on Saturday. A, you know, being, you know, this long out of the business, uh, retired, he really loved and lived for going to things like that and meeting the fans and meeting guys like you and, uh, and JP, uh, just seeing, you know, taking it all in. But I was really pumped to see Dominic get such a great, uh, response. You know, every time I looked over there the entire day, he had a lot of people and, uh, you know, all in all, it was a fantastic uh, Legends of the Ring convention. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was going to point that out as well. Every time I looked up and saw Dominic Danucci, he was talking to somebody. And that was really cool because you could see how engaged he was and you could see how happy he was to be talking about, I'm sure, all the great times that he's had. And I'm sure fans were, were jogging his memory and making him you know, kind of come up with oh, yeah. some of those, you know, great matches and, and some of those stories that maybe we never heard. And it was really cool, especially in an event like this. And I don't know, I'm not going to single out the East Coast, but th that fan base, obviously, that was Dominic Danucci's, you know, that was his bread and butter was that New York fan base. And those people who watched him, they were probably, you know, picking his brain and asking him stuff that maybe he had to remember or forced to remember or something. But, John, I want to ask you about this because we got to see a couple different sides of the room. And, you know, we always kind of walk around and see past guests that we interviewed on Two Man Power Trip or we see people we've worked with in the past. But, uh, you know, forgive me if I'm wrong. Do you agree that this was one of the better conventions I think we've all been to, at least together as a unit, since we've started this show? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, obviously, Shane was pretty busy all day. Obviously, with Jerry the King Lawler, we were pretty busy all day. Um, sitting across from Danucci, I, he looked busy. Obviously, uh, you know, Scott Casey's a rare get. Jose Luis Vera is a rare get. So, you know, you had some guys that were definitely um, doing some business, if you will, making some money. And I uh, really enjoyed the, the day. It was a pretty fun day with the King and obviously Shane. And uh, got to meet Dominic Danucci, who uh, did curse more than I thought he would. So I, I guess... Uh, <laughs> I guess the franchise is rubbing off on, on Dominic spending all that time together. No, no, no. He, he was he was my trainer in more ways than one. You can see I come by it naturally. Uh, uh, the, the way the, the way I can frivolously throw the f bomb around. <laughs> Very creative, both of you. <laughs> Fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, I'm allowed to say that on here. You can, yeah, you well, you can say whatever you want. It's your show. You could say, uh, you could say anything from A to the Z, uh, and, and everything under the sun. But you know, you look around that room, like you said, John. John mentioned Scott Casey, and you mentioned Jose Luis Rivera, and David Schultz, and then obviously Lawler. But then you throw in more guys like the Headbangers and Raven and Jillian Hall right. and Molina, and a lot of the WWE divas from like the mid two thousands were there and. I didn't even see Mean Gene. Mean Gene was there and Demolition. I mean, it was just such an eclectic group. And to me, that's always one of the cool things is just to kind of look around and be like, wow, you know, I'm still standing. I still am in awe of standing, you know, 20 feet away from uh, Axe and Smash. I Sometimes I just can't get over uh, being a mark for those old school names. <laughs> you, you would be, what, tongue, tongue twister. You would be pretty hard pressed to find two guys nicer 
uh, than Axe and Smash, you know, uh, Barry and Bill, uh, just fantastic people. And have always been like that, you know, since I met them, uh, just genuinely down to earth, uh, great guys, you know, so I, I didn't even know I mean Jim was there until you just said it. I had walked through the room a couple of times, but, you know, as congested as it was, you didn't really get a chance to look, you know, too far to your right or left, except, you know, who was sitting right here, right there. Uh, where was uh, Mean Gene sitting? John, I'm going to defer to you because I didn't know Mean Gene was there until after we left. Kind of in, in a weird spot. Like, if, if you look where we were, we were kind of in the middle. They were kind of yep. by the front entranceway where you walk in and, and kind of like in the corner. It's kind of a, a weird spot, especially for Mean Gene. Because I know he's been there before and he was on the back wall, which seemed to work well. This time he was. As soon as you walk in that main door to the right, he was kind of in the corner. So it was a kind of a weird placement for me and Gene. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I didn't hear anybody saying you know that he was there. As the first I heard his name, but like I said, I, I'd gone through a couple times, you know, going to the bathroom and going to get a, some water and things like that, and uh, just take the you know when it slowed down a little bit, to, I slid through real quick to go say hello to. Uh, Raven and Ultimo Dragon and uh, some, you know, a couple others. But I, I hadn't seen, I didn't see me. You know, I always love talking to Gene. That's why I'm, I'm inquiring because I wish I would have seen him to say hello. He's uh, always a fascinating guy to talk to. Oh my gosh, can't go wrong with me and Gene. And uh, also, you know, we can't forget Precious Paul Ellering was there and uh, Mister Electricity yes. Steve Regal. Who uh, I'm not going to say what John said to me privately because it was a funny line, but I just want to tell my partner that it was the my favorite thing uh, said all weekend. The most hilarious uh, line John had about uh, Steve Regal. I'm not going to say it. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It was just very funny. I didn't want to uh, share it on the air, but it, John, I just want to tell you, it made me laugh uh, the whole drive home. I was thinking about it. it made me laugh. <laughs> Do you remember what it was, John? <laughs> oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> just I, thinking... was, I was about to say but then I thought about it as I'm not going to say but um, that was, speaking of a like rare guest I don't think I've seen him do a convention in God knows how long, years so that was a pretty rare guest for our buddies over at K&S, I thought that was a nice nice get, if you will yeah it was a, you know, that, that's the neat thing about these conventions is that, you know, like I said there's some guys that you see pretty much at all of them. Uh, and then there's others that you don't see, uh, except rarely, if ever. And, you know, I, Steve, you're right. Steve's one of those that I haven't seen in quite some time uh, out at a convention. And, uh, but it, it also makes it interesting for the fans, you know, to come there and, you know, there's always a, uh, a mainstay block of, of wrestlers that they're going to see. And then, you know, those, the, the add-ons, the, the, the names that aren't there as much, uh, it really, you know, keeps each one of these conventions being unique and allows the fans to have a unique experience because of that. You know, it's been the, the same as it is for the fans. It is for us, the wrestlers, you know, because uh, uh, there are some people in that room you've never worked with, never really met or, you know, other than, Hey, you know, you know to see that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, a lot of these guys, like I said, just off the top of my head, mentioning uh, Jose Luis Rivera and, and uh, David Schultz. Uh, you know, I hadn't seen him in so long. It just really brings all that, you know, all that those years in between, p- 
push aside, they disappear, you know, and then you remember being a kid when you first met these guys. Uh, really a cool time, you know, for, for any fan out there, and I, I doubt there's many, but for any of the fans listening that, that haven't been to a convention like this, I would urge you to go because it, it's a hell of an experience. You know, you know, no matter who you're going there to see, you're going to see about 20 other guys that you didn't expect to see, and you're going to be shocked to see and happy to see. Uh, they're definitely worth the time and, and, and you know, uh, the, the the energy to get there because it's a hell of a lot of fun for wrestling fans. As people know, they've seen me on Twitter and Facebook talk about, you know, wrestling fans. I think everybody says it's in every genre, but because this is my genre, I can honestly say wrestling fans are the most loyal, uh, greatest fans in, in the world. You know, they, they, they'll come and they'll remember something you did a thousand years ago uh, with an incredible, uh, uh, incredibly accurate memory. You know, it, it makes you, as they're telling it to you, you start to think back, eh, yeah, I sort of remember that. Yeah, you're right. You know, you, you know, it jogs your memory to it. So it's, uh, the conventions are an awful lot of fun. So anybody that's not been to one, if there's anybody out there that hasn't been to one, make sure you get to one uh, in your area because you're going to have a hell of a good time. Yeah, and uh, the continued rise of the wrestling convention. I mean, there's more coming up every time you look around, and there's one that we'll all be at uh, when we meet again, the three of us, in Atlantic City this coming August. It's called Boardwalk Beatdown. I mean, this, this convention is, like, unbelievable how much it's grown since it was announced. I mean, it's headlined by Goldberg and Sting, but then they also added the Bullet Club. So you got Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks, and it's... Uh, it's pretty impressive the the amount of people that have been added to this show, and it's going to be at the Claridge Hotel in Atlantic City. So that in itself is pretty cool. That uh, Atlantic City uh, hub for events like this back in the day, you know, back in the '80s and '90s, Atlantic City was like basically the home of the baseball conventions, and now having a wrestling convention there, I'm so just absolutely excited to get there. You know, it's something to look forward to for the end of the summer. But that's the next time the three of us all be together under one roof. Now, I wonder if before that, can we find some place, uh, three big black sombreros with uh, silver embroidery on it and the bolero jackets would go to the three amigos. Uh, <laughs> I get to be the Steve Martin character, of course. Uh, <laughs> so you guys get to pick out which one's uh, Marty and which one. Yeah, let me uh, guess. Let's. Yeah, let, let me guess which one I'm going to end up being. I, I can only, uh, I can only imagine. Because here's the other great thing, Shane. This is a pretty funny story. So uh, this is the first time that we got to meet Devin Hannibal Nicholson uh, down there. We've talked to him on the phone. We, you know, we've interviewed him. You know, I communicate with him a lot on uh, Facebook, and we've chit chatted. And uh, it was the first time we met each other. So John comes over and they're chit chat. Hey, how you doing? Whatever. And he looks at John so deadpan, you know, and the way we've talked about Hannibal, he's just so just matter of fact, the way he says everything he says to John, he goes, you are taller than I thought you would be. And uh, I, tur I turn to him and I go, hey, Hannibal, I go, how about me? He goes, no, you're just about what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Pow. That's like reinsert the, the, like the old Batman series, though. The pow, bang. <laughs> big, big. <laughs> hey, now, I'm curious. I don't know if it's just in my head or if anybody else sees it. Uh, does he not remind you an awful lot of a certain wrestler? Hmm. Who would you be? Uh, I don't know. A certain, a certain, uh, Chris Benoit. Oh, yes. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you said that. Him. Yeah. 
I mean, he's much taller than Chris, but uh, in the face, in the in, in his mannerisms, in the way he talks, you know, that that, that slow measured delivery, uh, low key. Uh, that is, it, it's really eerie. Every time I see him face to face, it's only been two or three times. Uh, he he reminds me so much of Chris Benoit. It's scary, uh, you know. He uh, but uh, you know he always comes with you know. When I did the interview with him, like I've said a thousand times, he's you know he was so very well prepared and had some tremendous questions and in, in, in this notebook that we barely even scratched the surface of. I mean, he had I don't know twenty, thirty pages of tiny hand printed questions, and uh, you know then he popped up and and, and we did an inter- uh, you know real quick uh, on camera for him, uh, you know so. You know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested in going back and listening to his archives and and seeing you know, all the other interviews that he's done and listen to those because, you know, if, I'm sure they're as well prepared as he was when he interviewed me, uh, that he's he's pulling out probably some pretty damn interesting facts on everybody that he's interviewing. Yeah, he's fantastic, and and if Hannibal's listening, Hannibal, we all love you. We think you're great. Obviously, Shane just put you over again. I mean, you're, the interviews are very good. There's one that I really particularly like that he did with Jacques Rougeau uh, a couple of years ago because Jacques was one of the guys that uh, trained him after his initial training. He went and uh, learned under Jacques Rougeau, but they did a, a couple-hour interview in a barber shop. It's, it's really well done. And uh, Hannibal's also got a really great relationship with superstar Billy Graham. So the two of them have cut, cut a rug a few times and uh, – he, uh, you know, he always gets a lot of stuff, and you know Billy Graham. He, uh, he's another guy. He says what he wants, and uh, you know oh, yeah. Hannibal gets it out of him. Yeah, Hannibal gets it out of him every time. Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've always enjoyed listening to Billy talk. You know, he just, uh, uh, aside from being a wealth of knowledge and, and experience in the business, you know that. To, to me, him, Bruno Sammartino, those guys I was watching when I came in, but to me, they were the guys that were instrumental in the, the, the build that professional wrestling took that you know continued on into the 80s and 90s when wrestling went to places that nobody in the business could have ever envisioned it going. Uh, and and I, it, it, in my mind, it started with those guys. You know, Those guys were the uh, bedrock, the foundation that allowed the business to go in that direction. Uh, you know, I always said it was, especially watching Billy Graham for me as a, you know, it was a huge comic book mark growing up. Uh, Billy Graham was like a comic book come to life. You know, he was a superhero in a comic book come to life with his muscles and uh, that gift of gab and the bleached blonde hair and the tie-dyed tights. You know, he, he, all that was missing was the S on his chest. You know, I mean, he was, you know, just uh, just an incredibly charismatic guy that you know portended his character and the way he carried that character portended all that was coming in the business the hulk hogan's and the rick flares and you know uh all the stuff that came later in the business and you know the larger than life over the top uh billy graham embodied all that yeah i love the superstar he would be a great uh two-man power trip guest but uh you know, I don't know. Well, maybe uh, maybe he'll be popping up uh, down the road. Uh, you never know who's going to be on the other end of that line. But, Shane, let's kind of move ahead here into some of the topics we've got 
at hand. One of the things I was talking to you about on Saturday was this kind of crazy story about WWE letting go a senior vice president of global content distribution and business development. That's a pretty heavy title to, uh, to, to let somebody go. It's because of his wife's social media presence and her social media page. Uh, I kind of gave you the cliff notes on it and I sent you the article today, but what are, uh, what are some of your thoughts on uh, WWE letting go of this uh, Sal Salino or Silno? I don't want to say his name incorrectly, but uh, pretty big uh, role in the company to be let go because of your wife's uh, social media. Yeah, I, I, you know, the one thing I, I, I was curious about as I was reading that and, you know, doing some research on it was I've never seen uh, a, a WWE, you know, uh, office contract. In other words, you know, I've seen the, the Legends bullshit things and I've seen the, uh, 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 you know, obviously the wrestlers contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Something stuck in my throat, uh, you know. But I've never seen somebody that worked in the office, uh, especially in a, in a high, you know, senior vice president role. Uh, but the, the thing that just jumps out of my brain as I read this is, how in the world do you get fired for something your spouse does? You know, so if if, if your spouse goes out and is in the, you know, drunk is arrested for drunk driving, does that mean you're getting the boot because? your wife was out drinking and driving. Uh, if she goes out and murders somebody, does that mean you go to prison too? Uh, it just, I mean, it's a very, very strange thing. Uh, completely normal in the, in the world of the WWE, I guess, that, that this kind of uh, grotesquerie of, of uh, employment law. Uh, I'm sure there's probably some attorneys out there right now that work in attorney in, in, in employment law. They're, they're scratching their heads. I, for anybody that's not familiar, this his wife uh, who used a real, you know, if she wrote, if she was the person that came up with passwords, the passwords would all be A B C one two three because if, if her name was meant to kayfabe her identity, <laughs> it was a pretty piss poor attempt on uh, on her Twitter page to to kayfabe her identity. But yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm I'm really curious as to how you know, this guy gets fired, you know, A, the first thing is, is the information accurate? Uh, Is that why he was fired? Uh, Because I just can't imagine that somebody gets fired for something their spouse does, no matter how heinous, unless you were involved or implicit some way. Uh, But, you know, it's, uh, it seems to be, you know, a screwy way of doing business, but Hey, not like you ever heard that in the WWE before, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was a weird, um, I, I just think it was a weird article in, the, in the, the the vein that, you know, the fact it was reported by, what was it, Deadspin, that, or excuse me, Huffington Post that had um, reported it and, and gone with the story, and it's kind of a weird topic for, you know, a WWE employee to be covered in such a manner by an outlet like the Huffington Post, which, you know, say, we could say what we want about that outlet until the cows come home, not necessarily <laughs> the uh, the most, uh, you know, trustworthy and honest uh, uh, publisher out there. But we were kind of talking about on Saturday, who makes that decision to to let this gentleman go? Does it come from a guy like Vince? Is there somebody in place in front of Vince that's taking these you know, potential uh, hazardous uh, situations and dumping it before it gets to Vince. And I was more surprised at the fact uh, 
of the connection to the the president with the McMahon family that you know they were going to let him go so fast because of the wife's Twitter. You know, I kind of thought that might be a slippery slope, but you think that that call's still coming from Vince McMahon? Well, it's, I don't know how how the hierarchy goes. It's my experience in the WWE uh, that any major decision is made by Vince. Now, you know, when you look at this, I mean, let's before we continue on because some listeners are you know, probably in the dark as to exactly what we're referring to. Uh, the wife wrote some really absurdly racist things, uh, you know, and some really jaded comments and has a long history of this. And her, her, uh, her kayfabe name on Twitter is the, the first three letters of her first and last name. So, you know, really, you know, you know the, the, the uh, reporter for the Huffington Post had to, you ought to get the Pulitzer for uncovering that one because it's like the without a Rosetta Stone, how he was able to figure this thing out, I have no idea. Uh, but she wrote some really, you know, stupid things on a public forum. And so as a publicly traded company, you can see, you know, where Vince, I'm not usually one in the position of defending Vince, but you can see as a publicly traded company why Vince or anybody for the company would be you know, not real happy with that. But again, I still don't see how the spouse gets fired for that. Um, you know, it just seems really, really extreme. And unless they have some kind of, and, and up there it's quite possible, some ridiculous uh, uh, clause in the contract. You know, most employment law contracts have uh, a morality clause. But because your spouse does something immoral, <laughs> that doesn't apply to you. So you can't be fired for some immoral act that your wife does. And the second thing is, is, you know, where does the wife's First Amendment rights stop? You know, so, you know, we've talked about before on here, you know, First Amendment rights, we all know that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because you start a stampede and people get killed. That's the universal uh uh, explanation to that, but you know, I've, I've talked about it here before. Uh, somebody's First Amendment rights, as long as she didn't accuse somebody, you know, slander or libel somebody, uh, as long as they were, no matter how repugnant, and then some of those I read on there today were pretty repugnant, but you know, we all have the right to say, well, you know what, we're not gonna ever read another one of these, uh, uh, tweets by this idiot because she's a moron. Uh, that's that's our right. But to say that you're going to fire somebody for those things um, is is pretty questionable. I mean, I, I'd, again, I'd love to see a contract uh, from the WWE. I'd love to see under what guise uh, or what mechanism they fire him. You know, are they accusing him of being immoral? Uh, because of uh, his wife's comments, you know, this becomes a real slippery slope, you know. So, uh, it'd be interesting to see how this guy reacts to it. If he doesn't react and tells me that the contract must be pretty uh, uh, ironclad, and I'd love to see what kind of a clause is in a contract that says that you're responsible for every moronic thing your spouse says. Uh, uh, you know, it just it, 
seems strange. And it's I've been all day long running it through my head, trying to figure out how does he get fired for something she did. If she went out and murdered a thousand people, that doesn't make him a murderer unless he knew, uh, you know, then it makes him, you know, an, an accomplice, but you know, how are you an accomplice on somebody's words and comments? Uh, really, really strange. I'd be fascinated to hear, you know, a legal scholar, his, their take on it, uh, to, to see if, if cause I, I just don't see how this is copacetic that somebody gets fired for something their spouse does again, unless the person was complicit or, or, or an accomplice to it. And, you know, nothing that I saw in those articles that I read today or in the research that I did showed him having any, uh, input on any of it. So it wasn't like, and none of the, the, the things that I read, did she say, you know, well, my husband said this and I agree, or, you know, me and my husband believe this or that. Uh, it was all, you know, pretty well, pretty self-stated uh, comments from the ones that I read. And, and I read quite a few, uh, you know, they were bizarre uh, out there and, you know, repugnant. But like I said before, it's, I'm a, a stalwart on the First Amendment. So I, as repugnant as they are, as long as she didn't accuse somebody of being, you know, something that they weren't, i.e. A, a drug dealer or a child molester or something along that line, uh, no matter how repugnant it is protected speech by the First Amendment. Uh, so we get into a really gray area uh, when you start saying you're going to fire the spouse. Uh, I would say it'd be a gray area if she were the employee. And she got fired for saying something like that in a public place <clears throat> because, you know, again, morality clause is, uh, you know, that would be if you were caught drunk driving or, you know, uh, having an affair, uh, selling drugs, uh, you know, doing, you know, really questionable behaviors. <clears throat> the First Amendment guarantees that, that words, uh, i.e. beliefs, are not are not, uh, cannot be uh, made illegal. So they can certainly turn people off and people call this person an idiot and a scumbag and never gonna read her tweets again. But to say you're gonna fire the spouse, you know, uh, is, is incredibly questionable. And I would say even firing her if she were the WWE employee. But again, if anybody out there has their hands on a WWE office contract, uh, Shane Douglas booking at gmail.com. I'd love to see it because, uh, I'd love to see what clause or what mechanism they use to fire this guy. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, I kind of know something about the WWE human resources department and how they kind of operate. And, uh, we also have a friend who worked in a, uh, pretty big position, uh, for a few years in the WWE not too long ago. And, and you kind of know there, there is a revolving door of some sorts when it comes to positions and they don't look for many reasons to let people go because they can just fill it very easily. And, uh, it's one of those, right. whichever way the wind blows kind of days, if you're, um, you know, in favor, if you're out of favor, but you know, one of the quotes that I thought was interesting from the article was that they told this gentleman to distance himself from his wife on social media. So obviously not every tweet she's going to have or every Facebook post she's going to have is going to be, you know, politically driven or if it's going to be, you know, uh, radical or if it's going to be, you know, 
quote, racist or whatever they want to say. Not everything's going to be that way. So I want to know, like, does that include, like, if she was to say, hey, you know, hey, went to a ball game today with, my, you know, with a friend of mine. It was great. You know, can is he allowed to like that? Is he allowed to, uh, you know, say, wow, that looks great? Or is he, is he supposed to completely distance himself from his wife, you know, in terms of social media? I mean, that's that's where I was surprised at the whole thing. It's it, He doesn't have to agree with what she's saying, but you're still allowed to be married to whoever you are. I mean, there's no rule that says just because you work for a company a, that because your wife does this, you know, you have to now completely cut ties. I just, that, that to me was one of the, uh, the quotes that stood out to me about the whole thing. Well, I agree. Uh, but also, you know, there was such a volume of information in those uh, couple articles. Did I understand it correctly? Did I misread it where it said that, uh, the reporter had contacted the WWE and inquired about this guy, and uh, they like they they kayfabed it like they didn't they didn't come right out and say, well, yeah, he works here. Did I read that properly? That they like they kept it, it hidden. It's it said um, well, basically. So I'm trying. I'm looking at it as you're saying it, and. Um, uh, he was hired. He's been hired since February 2017. It was initially told the company was unaware, but he was on his second contract. O'Brien wrote an unnamed WWE spokesperson response. Is this the quote you're saying? Now that it has come to our attention, Sal Sino is no longer an employee. Is it that one you're talking about? Right, right. Now that it's come to our attention, yeah. Uh, and 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 I thought that I had had inferred or read that this reporter had contacted the WWE earlier and they sort of played it off like uh, whether they admitted that he worked there or I, I forget the exact uh, way it was phrased, but I know there was a place that I at least inferred that the WWE sort of concealed the fact that I don't know if they, they concealed that he worked there or that he worked there and was, was uh, married to this person. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of strange. It's a very strange story. Yeah, it was just kind of funny. It popped up out of nowhere uh, a few weeks back, and I, uh, I was dying to hear what you had to say about it. But it just, again, it was just a weird connection, you know, bridging the gap between uh, the political world and, and WWE, which is just funny that those two uh, worlds connect so much these days, you know, maybe more than they ever have, <laughs> whether it is the, the McMahons in the actual cabinets of the, uh, the WWE or the WWE making deals with the Saudis, and now you got them firing an employee over, uh, you know, his wife's social media being too politically driven. It's it's kind of weird how they're all kind of married together now. Yeah, well, you know, again, in this business, you know, we've seen a lot of people, you know, marriages going on in the business. Uh, you know, is, is, does that now mean like if John Cena and, and uh, what's her name, uh, uh, one of the Bella twins, uh, uh, if, if if he posts something pretty repulsive on Twitter, does that mean she's in jeopardy of being fired because she, she I don't think they are yet, but she's going to be married to John Cena. I mean, like, where do you draw this line? Uh, and then the next question being, if you fire employee A because of something their spouse says, and then employee B's spouse says something equally or worse, equally repulsive or worse, and doesn't get fired is that actionable offense uh, is that an actionable uh, 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 
offense by the company, you know, so it just becomes a very slippery slope. And, you know, one thing that in my experience that the law doesn't like is when you try to operate in the gray area, you know, so it's okay for employee B, C, and D, but employee A, we had to fire them because we thought their, their spouse's comments were worse. So we become the arbiter uh, of, of speech police. You know, this is bad enough, but that wasn't quite as bad. So, uh, you know, pretty interesting. You know, I think this, I think it's going to have legs a little bit beyond this uh, story. Uh, you know, and understand out there for what we're talking about, anybody listening, we are not defending any of the comments uh, by his wife. Uh, we're merely commenting on the situation of this guy being fired uh, for that. So pretty interesting, you know, for somebody like that, that, that enjoys the constitution like I do, uh, this is going to be really interesting to follow along with and see where this goes. Speaking about a law in, in different cases, I know last week on the show, we were talking about punk and cabana versus the WB doctor. And we we're like, Oh, we know, let's see how this plays out. And this is interesting. Well, a few days later, you know, it, it uh, settled itself, and, and pretty much now there's an ending to it where we, we're not going to really be following along with it. We're just going to be commenting on basically the end of it as Punk and Cabana were absolved of defamation charges by the WWE doctor, Chris Amon. What were your thoughts on that? That ended pretty quickly, and Punk and Cabana obviously won pretty quickly. Well, first of all, the fact that the jury came back, or the judge, rather, I don't know if it was a judge or a jury, but they came back so quickly uh, with uh, this acquittal uh, tells me that it was a really lopsided case, you know, because when you get into these areas, there's usually a lot of it's degrees. So is it, you know, this many degrees past the line or this many degrees before the line, uh, that's where it usually takes uh some time for them to come up with a verdict that they came back so quickly with the verdict tells me that this was a no case at all. Uh, but it also now opens up, uh, the information. Once you put something in public realm, you can't take it back out. So now that this guy, this doctor's, uh, questionable, uh, note-taking, uh, patient notes, uh, the fact that he, kept very copiously uh, uh, errant notes on, on, on the patients, uh, very uh, uh, light on information, not exactly the kind of thing that you'd want in a, in a medical file. Uh, a, I think that first of all, the first thing that jumped out at me with that is this, now we have proof that the medical team in the WWE uh, takes notes a certain way. Uh, I've always believed that the WWE had a real lack of interest in the well-being of their wrestlers. All their attempts, you know, the, you know, the well wellness policy and all that aside, uh, you know, that you, you can see now with the, uh, uh, with these notes, uh, that it's very questionable in the way that the note taking was, was done by these, physicians that were overseeing the medical care for the wrestlers, the performers in the WWE. Uh, now those are part of the public realm. So it'll be interesting to see who else comes up uh, and, and seeks those notes. 
in other cases, uh, as we know, the WWE has other cases going on and, you know, and, and what light those will shed in, in those cases. So, you know, this is one of those cases like, you know, where, you know, you're told, you know, be careful, like, you know, pick your fights, you know, carefully, you know, because you don't want to go out and say, well, we're going to sue these guys and we'll show them, we'll make them spend a lot of money and we'll show them because, you know, I'm guessing if, if it was that week of the case, the jury came or the judge, again, I don't know if it was a judge uh, making the decision or a jury, but that they came back that quickly shows that this was a really lame and weak case to begin with. Uh, so it tells me that the company was intending to just, you know, attempt to screw Punk and, 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 and Colt Cabana uh, by making them get, a, you know, attorneys and legal fees and, and call that, which ain't cheap. Uh, but now all the information that was made public in, in that case are now in court documents, which, which are now public. And you can't now go and pull them back. You can't go in and say, hey, we want these, uh, you know, protected because it could cause us other legal problems. Uh, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Like the last the last uh, case, you know, the WWE is fighting some legal cases and, you know, uh, you know, not exactly batting a thousand. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, but I'm really happy for Punk and, and for Colt because this was a direct attempt to stifle their freedom of speech. And let's not forget, CM Punk was once fired by WB on his wedding day. So there's a lot of little yeah. uh, side factors going on that they definitely don't like this guy. You agree uh, there's a little bit more to play than just defending the doctor there? Uh, oh, mere coincidence that he got fired on his wedding day. They they just didn't realize that. <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it, it's obvious that, you know, that there's... Uh, you know, Punk, from my understanding, uh, had inquired, uh, you know, asked some pretty pointed questions, you know, when they launched the network, uh, how, you know, the wrestlers made a large chunk of their money per year, uh, especially the, the top guys from the pay-per-view, uh, uh, you know, pay-per-view sold well, and they, they would get a nice chunk of that because they were the main event, semi-main event, et cetera. And Punk was asking some pretty pointed questions to Vince and demanding to know, how are you going to make up that loss of our income? And, uh, you know, apparently it was never given a satisfactory uh, answer. And, and I think that was part of what started, you know, the, the dissolving of the bond between Punk and, and WWE. And, uh, and I think that's a question that has yet to be answered. You know, it's... Uh, you know, how are the wrestlers, uh, you know, what's making up the income for them or is nothing making it up? Is it just, you know, now a lion's share of the money is going into the, the company uh, and not to the wrestlers? Uh, you know, another another curious uh, query. Now, obviously, he was 1-0 against WWE in court, but now he is 0-2 in the UFC octagon. He lost again to Mike Jackson. The animus decision, I think what came out of it, to me anyway, from seeing uh, a lot of highlights and maybe some um, you know, footage maybe that I, that I didn't order to show, but maybe I saw it online in other ways. But anyway, uh, it looked like Mike Jackson should have been able to finish him. He wasn't able to finish him. So at least Punk showed you know, some toughness. He wouldn't give up. He was very gritty. He was beat up. 
and obviously you took a, a unanimous decision loss. Do you think, obviously, Punk, with making his $1 million, two fights, he made a little bit over $1 million in the UFC. Do you think with his departure from UFC, does that leave the door open to his wrestling return? Uh, I, at this point, I'd be shocked to see him return to the WWE. Uh, you know, like you said, the the firing on your wedding day, you know, the, this, this lawsuit case, which I think must have played uh, into his preparation, you know, had some negative effect on his, his preparation for this fight this past weekend. Uh, you know, anybody's ever been involved in a lawsuit knows that it can get pretty emotionally draining. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so much up in the air that it had to have had an impact on him in, in that way. But as far as his imminent return to wrestling, uh, you know, Punk is still well-remembered, uh, well-respected in the industry. And, you know, we've seen odder things uh, in, in the WWE, I, but I, I would be surprised if Punk would want to return to the WWE. Uh, so it would remain to be seen, but, you know, he's, uh, you know, the fact that he had all that going on, you know, a lawsuit, a protracted lawsuit going on leading up to this uh, fight this past weekend. Like I said, there's no question in my mind, <coughs> excuse me, that had to have a, uh, you know, a pretty serious impact on his preparation for that fight. And, you know, d d d I didn't see his first uh, uh, UFC fight, but uh, did he show enough improvement? I'm thinking like from the company's point of view, from UFC's point of view, did he show enough improvement from first to second uh, fight? And then, you know, with them knowing the, the you know, the, this lawsuit going on as, he, as he's prepping for the second fight, you know, might they re-sign him? You know, because Punk still does have, you know, a uh, a pretty well-known name. And if he showed some improvement between those two, uh, they, they, you know, I'd be interested to see if they're going to want to say, hey, let's, you know, let's give him a one-fight a one fight deal, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but as far as his imminent return to wrestling, I don't see him returning to, uh, you know, a smaller company. Uh, because I don't think a smaller company would be able to pay him what he'd want. And I really don't see him returning to the WWE, uh, uh, whether the WWE would want him back or not. I, you know, you'd have to ask Vince, but, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see Punk as wanting to return there. So it'll be interesting to see where this plays out for him. You know, it's uh, uh, a big question. I mean, he's still a young enough guy uh, that he can make, you know, a pretty good run in the business. Uh, you know, remain to be seen if something else pops up, if another promotion pops up, uh, you know, he, you know, I think he'd be pretty high, uh, high on the list of, uh, you know, free agents out there. So, you know, a lot of big question marks to that right now. I think a lot of people are looking at all in, in Chicago on September 1st, obviously Cody Rhodes and the young Bucks show. And I think they're thinking that is where punk will make his return some way. Somehow, obviously, good friends of the Young Bucks, and Chicago is his hometown, and sure. Omega, the new IWGP World Champion, Kenny Omega, will be there. So I feel like they already sold out. They already have the 10,000 seats, but imagine the main event of Kenny Omega versus CM Punk. And, I mean, throw the IWGP title in there if you want. I don't know if New Japan would allow it, but imagine Punk versus Omega uh, would be uh, an amazing main event. Oh, no question. But, you know, for the long term, 
you know, it's the longevity part of it. Uh, you know, it's I've, I've heard whispers that, uh, you know, that the all in gang, uh, you know, may do <clears throat> another town or another city. Uh, be smart, you know, I'm, I'm, because they had the buzz behind this one. I'm sure it would do equally as well. But, you know, is it can they pay him enough for one appearance uh, or two appearances or, or whatever? Or will a company get launched off of this? But, but I'll get back to my comments about another promotion. Uh, so it'll be, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me for him to, to pop in uh, to the All In show. Uh, you know, again, being Chicago and his closest to all those guys. Uh, and it, it would get a lot of buzz, uh, that's for sure, for Punk's return. So he'd a lot to keep our eyes on. Now, with Kenny Omega winning the IWGP title, I think that finally cements him as a huge player for New Japan. Them coming over to the States more often, obviously, July 7th with Cow Palace. He's going to become a major focus, and obviously he's going to become a major draw. It seems like he's already do, doing a pretty good job of being a draw. Do you think Omega will be able to carry the torch? Okada was the champ for two years. Their business went nothing but skyrocket. And obviously they're making inroads in, in the United States. Do you think Omega is that big of a star? Will he be that big of a main eventer? Will he make an impact in the States where you'll see them actually compete a little bit with the WWE? Well, that's, I mean, that's a, a big mountain to climb, you know, being that they're a foreign based company, uh, you know, I know that their uh, television outlet was on, on Access uh, hadn't garnered the numbers that Access had hoped for, but you know, you see a lot of buzz building behind it. And, and, and as for Kenny Omega, you know, I think he's clearly talented enough uh, to to be the uh, you know the the marquee guy for that company. Uh, also, being that they've been trying to you know build their American presence, you know, so it makes a lot of sense to have an you know an American English speaking guy. Uh, uh, on there as they try to do that. Uh, but, you know, his his forays with uh, uh, Jericho and, you know, now, and then now the All-In show, you know, most wrestling fans out there are uh, very well aware of who Kenny Omega is and, and what he's capable of doing in the ring. So, yeah, I think he could be a, a you know, marquee player and certainly help uh, uh, New Japan as they as they continue building their brand here in the states. Now I know Chad wanted to talk about a, a certain topic with you, a certain female topic with you. Um, he always pretends that that I'm obsessed, but I feel like he might be obsessed with her because he's always mentioning her and wanting me to mention her to you. So I don't know if, if Chad, you want to say who it, who it is or or uh, your obsession with her, but uh, how, how does he? How does he? I, I hope he's not talking about my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't have the. I don't. I don't have any uh, connections to your ex-wife, Shane. But I mean, <laughs> as, as being the the rest the wrestling pundit, you know, and historian that uh, one great, you know, I don't know if you ever heard of him, but American Dream Dusty Rhodes uh, once quoted John and I as being, you know, anybody who's anybody knows that on June tenth, two thousand five that you and Francine reunited for the first time uh, in years. And that was the big hardcore homecoming show. And I just think it's kind of, you know, apropos that it's at episode 51. We're approaching the year anniversary that, you know, I kind of put down on our list here to, uh, you know, why don't we reflect a little bit on Francine here? 
you know, being that that 13 year anniversary from the first hardcore homecoming show, that was a big deal. You two reuniting back then. So, I mean, I just like to take a walk back down memory lane. I don't think there's anything, uh, anything good, bad or indifferent about that. I'm, uh, I'm as big a Francine Mark as anybody else in this room right now. And I'm the only one here. So take that for what you want. Well, <laughs> as am I, but I'm, I'm sure you've seen on Twitter, <clears throat> Francine's been having, you know, all, all joking aside, she's been having a pretty bad run lately. Uh, uh, she'd had surgery uh, and had a pretty tough recovery from that. Uh, then her daughter uh, pushed on at school and broke both her wrists. Uh, so she's being homeschooled. She spilled uh, some hot grease on her foot last week accidentally. Uh, so yeah, I've started calling her Slip Rock. You know, that she's, uh, <laughs> you know, she's got a black cloud hanging over her. And, and she's pretty busy with all of that. So, uh, you know, I... I, I I would think we probably had a better chance of getting my ex-wife uh, to be a guest on the show right now. If you want to be a caller, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the number. You know, because I, I won't call her, but I'll give you the number. You can call and see if she'll be on. But uh, you know, I do have a very big guest planned for next week, and I can't let you two in on it because you guys are always surprising me with the Ask Franchise Anything question. I figured as my one-year gift, my one-year anniversary gift to my, to my uh, partners, uh, that uh, that I would surprise you guys with a big guest uh, here next week, and uh, leave it at that. Yeah, the, uh, the intrigue is uh, is definitely the eyebrows raised right now. I uh, I'm excited for that, but I do want to stick on this Francine topic. I, I will. Uh, I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna sell it short because I I do think this was a big anniversary that we just passed with the hardcore homecoming show because everybody was starting to share the ECW one night stand, uh, videos and pictures and reliving the ECW one night stand. When I, I dare say hardcore homecoming was about as authentic an ECW show as you could possibly imagine, uh, being since, I don't know, folks, it was in the ECW arena. So that could be one of the, uh, the, the main key components, but Shane, you know, you and Francine at that point, it was even recorded, on video, you're reuniting after years of, um, you know, having either you know, been apart, you know, haven't been together, whatever you want to say. Um, but that show in itself, that was a big moment for ECW fans, for the for you guys as, as the wrestlers and the workers who worked in the company. Hardcore Homecoming being 13 years ago already, that's kind of hard to believe. That was a big deal when it took place. It really is hard to believe that long ago. When I, as I planned that show, I was living in Florida at the time. Uh, and was out uh, on a brutally hot Florida day cutting my grass. And, uh, you know, I was running it through my head about, you know, the logistics and what had to be done. And, you know, uh, of course, contacting all the you know people and make sure we could get all of them on board. Uh, and then, of course, having to book out the show. Uh, but there's something, you know, you hear it all the time on Behind the Music, right? There's something about when you get the band back together. Uh, there's a chemistry that goes on, and especially being in that building, the infamous ECW arena, uh, there was a, a, an electricity in the air. Uh, as we got to the building that day, it felt very reminiscent of, of uh, the original ECW. Uh, the vibe in the air, uh, the, the camaraderie in the dressing room, uh, it just felt like we hadn't skipped a beat. You know, it just felt like it was a, you know, a few months before we were there, and you know, creating the magic in that original ECW. So, uh, 
but it is. It's really hard to believe that that was 13 years ago. That was uh, just a month or two after uh, uh, Chris Candido had passed away, and we had obviously had a very big role planned for Chris there. Um, you know, it was a uh, sort of a somber mood, as as much as it was a party atmosphere because of you know, like I said, getting the gang back together again. But there was this, you know, this uh, negative Paul. Uh, sort of like floating around in the back of the room because of, you know, at that point, so many of the guys being gone by then, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, Anthony Durante was gone. People remember, uh, uh, two, uh, big Dick Dudley, uh, Teddy, uh, from the uh, public enemy, you know, there was, uh, you know, Louis McCauley, there was this long list of guys. <clears throat> and in that segment of the show, I uh, had planned out, you know, to, to do a uh, memorial video, and uh, Jeremy Borash had put that together, and I, I gave him, you know, the, the list that I wanted the guys shown in, and uh, I had left a space, I think it was like four minutes in the show for that. Uh, Jeremy put together a fantastic uh, memorial video, but as we started watching it, and you know, it starts going and you know, it was so well done uh, and really helped relive the memory of, uh, of all those people we'd lost. You know, I think it ended up being close to seven minutes long. And, you know, at first I thought, you know, we need to cut that down a bit. And I thought, no, it was so well done. And, and each one of those guys deserved every bit of time that they got on that video. Uh, you know, so it was, you know, like a lot of fan reunions, it was a lot of fun and there were some bittersweet memories to it. But by the end of the night, it was pretty clear that the fans had really appreciated the effort and, and what they had gotten and uh, that we were able to, to bring back for that one night, uh, you know, that little bit of that ECW magic back to the ECW arena. Yeah, and you actually, that's, I mean, the fact that you came up with that thought to dedicate that portion of the show to the Fallen Brothers and uh, and the folks that had passed away since ECW had closed, you know, every ECW tribute show that's been done since has taken that and done the exact same thing. So the fact that you came up with that is, is you know, that's very, that's very touching. And, and you know what? I'll tell you what. It's I'm not going to kill your gimmick, but it's very telling of you because you do care a lot about the guys that you work with. And uh, I'm telling you, every show, whether it was the TNA shows or any of the WWE shows, they all took that model. And they all used it. And the fact that came from the mind of the franchise, it's um, it's very telling because that's the kind of guy you are. Well, the, you know, there's <clears throat> again, we, we the magic we created there was at the time we were doing it. You know, we were all just having a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, and at least speaking for myself, I couldn't envision there being an end to that. You know, that it just seemed like it would go forever. Like we had finally found our home. Uh, you know, we had built our fan base. We were offering an incredibly good product. And to me, it just seemed like this was, this is where I would write out the rest of my career. So when that ended, you know, like anything, you you look back fondly to those things uh, that you did accomplish together. And, you know, I saw on Twitter today, uh, somebody had written in uh, to Taz, uh, about you know how much he missed those matches and that time and era that era of ECW, and uh, and I wrote back that you know it takes two to tango, and you know that I had somebody like Taz 
that I had a Raven, that I had a Tommy Dreamer, that I had a, a Sandman, that I had a Terry Funk, uh, that I had a Francine to work with me, that I had all those assets, you know, really made my job easy and, and having to go out and do what we had to do, uh, that I felt that at very least, uh, felt incredibly strongly that we can't just have this big celebration tonight and forget about those that aren't here anymore because everybody that was on that video uh, played as important a role in the success of ECW as anybody else in that building, me included. So take us back to the main event of that show. Obviously, it's Sabu versus yourself versus Terry Funk, which we all know that's the uh, the infamous barbed wire showdown, the three of you, and uh, one of the, the benchmark matches for ECW. But getting to go back out there with Francine uh, after everything and the fact that you guys had separated, she went her own way, you left and went to WCW, she would end up being paired with a couple different other uh, wrestlers in ECW, but never really reclaimed the role that she had alongside the franchise. So as you guys are getting ready to walk through that curtain, what's going through your head as you're about to relive you know, those glory days and you're about to you know, step through those ropes one more time and, and have that magic happen again in the ECW arena? I, I think Francine said it best right before we went to the curtain. She looked at me and she said, is this not surreal or something along those lines? Uh, and we went to the curtain and it really was like stepping back in time. Uh, it, it could have just as easily been 19, you know, uh, 96 or seven uh, as, as it was 2005. Uh, it, it's, it really did seem seamless. Uh, the, the match itself, as we were putting that match together, you know, we had, uh, you know, the, the Pennsylvania Commission was getting pretty tight at that time in what they would allow and not allow. And, you know, barbed wire, you know, the, 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 put it this way, by 2005, uh, the Pennsylvania Commission wouldn't have allowed about 95% of what we did in the original ECW. So we, you know, we're walking the fine line there. But luckily for us, uh, you know, the commissioners that we had, were familiar with all of us. Uh, they knew that we were all professionals and uh, they gave us enough leeway that we could put that match on and do it justice in that building and give the fans what, uh, what they were expecting from it <clears throat> and still not run afoul of the regulations of the Pennsylvania Athletic Commission. But, you know, standing in the ring there with, with Terry and Sabu and having Francine out there, uh, just it's, you know, if anybody ever gets a chance in their life to, to be able to step back and, you know, almost a decade earlier in their life and, and be standing in that exact same spot, the smell of the building, the feel of the building, uh, the sound of the crowd, uh, everything you know all the variables were exactly perfect it literally was like stepping through a time machine you know back to almost 10 years previous so uh like i said i think francine's uh words right before we stepped through the curtain pretty much summed it up it was it was surreal uh, it was you know you, you felt like you're you know someone's gonna pinch you you wake up and that you were dreaming it because it seemed so unlikely uh, and yet so vividly uh, exactly like the original ECW, that it was it was really strange in, uh, in a very good way. So is there one thing you can pinpoint about the chemistry with the two of you 
that it's maybe is it a nonverbal thing that you you both know what you're thinking in terms of the psychology uh, of her role in your matches or just the actual match itself like how is it the the chemistry with you blossomed to the point it was where you re, you two really you know whether or not it, it, the the casual fan thought that you two were basically an item just based off of how you were on screen you know what was it about that chemistry that that was able to kind of make it look so natural for the two of you to be paired together well, first of all, Francine had been trained. You know, she wasn't just, you know, uh, a pretty girl that had, had showed up in the building uh, to be a valet or a manager. Uh, she had been trained. So she was adept at taking bumps and, and doing, you know, those physical things in the ring. And for me, it was, it was a comfortable pairing because, uh, you know, after we had been together for a month or two or three, whatever it was, uh, in those very early days, you know, we would work on certain cues, uh, whether they were verbal or physical, uh, at which point she would draw attention, uh, and, and, you know, and that would allow me to, to buy some time to get to the next spot or what I was going to call next. Uh, but after that initial period, and, and now keep in mind, we were traveling together as well. So, you know, we were rooming together. We were traveling together. Uh, I was with her as much as I would be with any, you know, with any tag team partner or, you know, uh, uh, traveling members that I'd ever been with previous. And during that time, we would talk about psychology of matches, uh, those verbal and nonverbal cues, uh, you know, all the way down to, uh, you know, what happens if I would really get hurt. Uh, you know, seriously injured and couldn't continue, so that she wouldn't just continue on, uh, you know, working it, that she would know that it was legit. Um, you know, all there was a lot of that that took place. It was, you know, sort of like cramming for an exam in those first few months. But once we got past that, uh, you know, once we had that time under our belt and that experience together, uh, it really did become almost like we were on like a uh, you know, like a, a, a mind melt, you know, like she would know instinctively where to do something or where to draw attention. Um, you know, where, you know, where to interact with the crowd, where to ignore the crowd, uh, where to find the camera and be in that right spot. Uh, you know, those are things that take time to build for anybody in the business and for any took them like a fish to water, you know, she picked them up very quickly and, you know, that made it so much more fun once we got to that comfort zone where we, we knew instinctively what each other was going to be doing. Uh, then it became fun, you know, because it, the, the first couple of months, it, it really was work because we had to work on developing those things together. It's uh, just like when I did the commentating with Joey Styles. Uh, you know, initially I was stepping on him or. Uh, I'd, I'd give a break and he would think it was okay to talk and I'd finish a thought and he would step in on me. Uh, it just took us a little bit of time to develop that chemistry. Once we had that chemistry down, I could tell by Joey's inflection, his voice inflection, where he was wrapping up a sentence or a thought and where I could then jump in without jumping on his line. Uh, same thing with me and Franny. It, it, it developed over time uh, through hard work and, and effort. Uh, but in, in, when I say over time, a very brief period of time you know, two, maybe three months. And at that point, uh, you know, it wasn't like we couldn't learn more things after that or, you know, learn more about each other after that. But from that point forward, 
uh, going through the curtain is just sort of like on autopilot. You know, I, I didn't even have to think about it. I knew that Franny would be where she had to be, where I needed her to be, uh, where she would get the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, punch for the dollar, you know, being on, you know, obviously being a beautiful woman like she is, uh, having her in the right spot on camera, uh, you know, all those little things. And then of course, you know, the, the throwing the, the crazy bump here and there, like the power bomb to the table from the, from the pit bulls, uh, when she was all of about 103 pounds soaking wet with 10 pound dumbbells in her hand. Uh, you know, those types of things made Franny, you know, a, a uh, an enigma, you know, here's this, this dainty, you know, beautiful woman, uh, looks like she should be turning letters on the, the wheel of fortune. And instead she's on the top rope being power bond by a 280 pound pit bull through a, through a table, uh, you know, and, and <laughs> surviving to, to tell the tale the next time. So, you know, all those things that put so many fat, so many parameters, uh, and dimensions to the character, my character, you know, where, uh, you know, she would, uh, you know, step in and draw the attention when I was getting my ass kicked or whatever, uh, just really made me look even more like a bigger piece of shit that I would be willing to, <laughs> to do that and use her in that way. Uh, and you know, the fact that she could do it so well, uh, but that, you know, built over a short period of time. And then, like I said, became autopilot after that. And once we reached that point, uh, every night was, was a blast. You know, I, in every place else I've ever worked before or since there were as much fun as I've had. And I've had a lot of fun in the business and every place else it did still seem like a job. Uh, in ECW working with Franny, it never seemed like a job. It was like you were getting paid a hell of a lot of money to do your favorite, to, to, to practice your favorite hobby. Uh, you know, and then the fact that we also got along so well outside of the ring, you know, we would drive up and down the road and we would, you know, have each other, everybody in the car laughing till we were crying, uh, telling jokes and ribbing each other and whatever. It just uh, was an awful lot of fun. You know, looking back, it was uh, by far the most fun I've ever had in the industry. And, you know, when we have something like a hardcore homecoming that comes up and allows you to relive that, even if it's just one night, uh, it's always a very welcome thing because there was so much fun in it at that time. Yeah, you've had the uh, the ability and the, uh, the luck, I'd say, to be paired with a lot of great female valets. Uh, and managers and, and people to work with, obviously Sherry Martell and Francine and Tori Wilson yes. and, and a lot of great female talent. But did Francine kind of set the bar for everybody else? And did you learn how to work with the female talents outside of your Sherry Martells, who obviously was well established by the time you were working with her? But did working with Francine kind of help you with the female talents uh, a little bit more down the road? Yeah, I, I, when, when I first started working with Franny, I, I couldn't imagine uh, doing it any differently or any better than, than I did with Sherry Martell because Sherry was just so damned awesome. Uh, you know, she was just an incredible performer that, you know, had all those, it was like having another great worker, you know, out there at ringside with you. And, you know, she'd, you know, throw ideas at me. Uh, you know, if I, if I was blank someplace, I, you know, you got something, she'd poof, rattle it right off. Like she was thinking about it already. Uh, you know, so I couldn't imagine it getting any better than that because 
it really was so seamless with Sherry and she was such a pro. But Franny gave it a different parameter. Uh, there was a undertone of uh, sexuality. Uh, you know, it's like, was there something going on between us? Wasn't there? Uh, you know, and all of that played into it. It was a very different vibe than, you know, Sherry was more like a manager uh, and was incredibly good at it. And but Francine allowed my character to bounce off of her character in ways that really led to a lot of questions in the fans' mind. And like you said, the chemistry that was there was was unmistakable. I mean, it, you know, when you watch it on camera, even now, uh, you know, there's things that bleed through that are unspoken. You know, there's no move. Uh, it's just you know a glance that she would give or. You know, uh, 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 you know, the, the turn of the, the head or whatever. Uh, you know, those the very subtle, uh, those the, the subtleties that, if you try to write them in, they become onerous and look contrived. Uh, but her doing them organic—I hate to use the word—but her doing them organically uh, added so much more to the atmosphere. You know, to the on-screen atmosphere of what you were watching that uh, I think for me anyway, that was me at my very best, uh, not just in the ring, but in playing off of her character, her playing off of mine, it was so comfortable, uh, you know, fit like a glove, you know, that you didn't have to even think about it. It just was, you know, as far, for all intents and purposes, it was as legitimate as my relationship with my wife, albeit it wasn't a relationship. It was, uh, a professional relationship that we had that once that camera was rolling, you know, the, the, the vibe between us, like I said, if you watch any of the footage now, it's unmistakable, you know, the, the, those things. They come, it really bleeds through uh, as intended very well. Uh, later with Tori Wilson, you know, Tori uh, had a, a different uh, role than, say, Francine or Sherry Markettel had. Uh, but she took to it very well. She, but Tori was an uber professional. Uh, you know, did everything that was, uh, you know, thrown at her. Uh, did it with a smile on her face, worked hard at it. Uh, but we weren't together long enough, I didn't think, uh, to really build that, you know, that chemistry as, as deeply as Francine and I had done it. And we were not in as prominent a role in WCW for whatever reason as Francine and I were in ECW. But uh, I enjoyed working with all three of them. Uh, I have nothing but good things to say about all three of them and proud of what Francine and I accomplished in those building years of ECW and helping build ECW into, into the legend it became. And I, I think Francine was a very big part of that. With this woman's revolution now and Charlotte Flair's of the world and the Oscars and now Ronda Rousey and WWE, you think that the girls of ECW, the women of ECW, the Beulahs, especially the Francines, you think that they have been overlooked? It's almost like, oh, there was no, you know, empowering, important uh, women uh, in wrestling until recently. You think that's often overlooked with those guys where it's like, well, wow, what about the Francines of the world in the women's wrestling revolution? Absolutely, because it was the transition for women. Uh, you know, prior to that, women's wrestling uh, you know, you go back and look at the mullahs and, and, uh, you know, all the women, I don't want to say all the women, but the way women were portrayed as wrestlers in the business, uh, leading up to that, they were like the, 
the tomboys in the dressing room type thing, uh, you know, that suddenly here in ECW you have these beautiful women, you know, uh, Kimona, uh, uh, Peaches, Francine, Viola, uh, you know, there was a long litany of them in ECW and they were, excuse me, they were, uh, not just beautiful women, they were, you know, uh, uh, vixens, you know, they, they could get on camera and, you know, like I said with Francine, get power bombed through a table or jump in there and shoot that spot time-wise perfectly. And it, it, suddenly they weren't just eye candy. Uh, like women had, so like, like Miss Elizabeth had been previous to that. Uh, pretty damn good eye candy, but eye candy. Uh, now they were an integral part of the show, an integral part of the matches and the angles. And I think that a lot of that that we see in, 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 in for the Divas today and taking nothing away from any of them. Uh, I think Charlotte's done an amazing job as, as Oscar and all, you know, so many of them up there. Uh, but an awful lot of that, I believe, uh, draws its lineage directly from what uh, the women in ECW did. Uh, they weren't they weren't just the eye candy for ECW. Uh, they were an integral part of ECW's success. You know, you can't imagine the ECW without those women. Uh, they were as important as any of the performers on the card. Uh, they, you know, they were, you know, one of the key players. And, you know, for that, I think that where we've seen women's wrestling go, you know, go since then, I think draws a lot and owes a lot to what the Francines and the Beulahs and, and the Kimonas and all the rest of the women in ECW did because they opened doors. They, they, they suddenly had wrestling fans looking at beautiful women as more than just eye candy. Now they can be uh, a key player and, you know, one that's not just thrown on just because we need to get some, uh, you know, some TNA out there. They were there because they were an integral part of the company of the angles and of the matches. And so everything that's going on right now with the Divas, I think, owes some some benefit of the doubt to the to the Frannies of the world and the ECW women because they, they really did have people suddenly looking at women in wrestling as being far more than just eye candy. And we know we really don't talk too much politics anymore on this show, but I have to mention this because it has so many wrestling tie-ins. It's crazy. Obviously, with North Korea, with Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, president of the United States, you know, the North Korea, U.S. thing. But Donald Trump is a WWE Hall of Famer, whether we uh, you know, agree or disagree. He is in the WWE Hall of Fame, did uh, right. have WrestleMania 4, did have WrestleMania 5. He was the greatest draw in the history of Mania, if you look at it, with WrestleMania 23. So his importance to WWE is, is many, many years in the, in, in the making. Obviously, Linda works in his um, cabinet, if you will. He, she works with the Small Business Alliance, and she's working under Trump in the government. And then, of course, you got former NWO member, former big draw, and people uh, forget that, and, and nice little buy rates and, and nice little rating getter, uh, former NWO member Dennis Rodman. You ever think it's funny? You know, sometimes when you look at real life or politics, something's like, Man, there's a lot of wrestling tie-ins everywhere you go and everywhere you look. It's you know, it's really crazy, isn't it? Because 
you know, wrestling, you know, like I said about earlier in the show about Billy Graham and Bruno and, and the way that they were the foundation that all that wrestling would become. Do you think that any of them could imagine, you know, 35, 40 years later, uh, seeing this play out as we're, as we're seeing it play out now, uh, you know, Dwayne Johnson, if not the biggest, certainly one of the biggest draws in Hollywood, uh, you know, uh, Steve Austin, you know, with his, uh, uh, his shows, uh, 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 Chris Jericho with Fozzie and his podcast, uh, you know, Taz, you know, with, with his radio program. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like wrestling has finally started spilling over out of that, you know, for, for most of my career, wrestling was situated someplace between, sport and entertainment we weren't athletes we weren't actors we were the redheaded stepchildren neither of those camps wanted anything to do with us and suddenly you're seeing now like you just said you know dennis robin you know uh on tv today giving a very impassioned speech uh, uh very emotional uh about what he experienced and coming back here after having gone over there several years ago to, to meet with uh kim jong-un uh you know, and, and Donald Trump, like you said, you know, member of the WWE Hall of Fame and uh, you know, having appeared on uh, multiple WrestleManias and multiple WWE shows, uh, you know, on, on the world stage. Uh, you know, add all that together with what I just said about Dwayne and, and, and Jericho and Austin and, uh, you know, Kevin Nash involved in movies and all these things that have bled out beyond, far beyond uh, the wrestling ring. Uh, so to speak, uh, and, and now you see it playing out, you know, on the world stage. Uh, I I would dare say that there's no way the Brunos and Billy Grahams of the world could have ever imagined that some point down the road, and uh, I couldn't have imagined it during my career. Uh, you know, when I was you know running you know running the rings in ECW, and uh, I just always seemed like we were ignored by both those camps and now it seems that you know that wrestling has superseded both of those genres entertainment and sport uh you know i would dare say that dwayne johnson is probably more widely recognized than anybody that plays in the nfl uh or any other sports leagues um you know dennis robin how many eyeballs on the planet today saw dennis robin giving that emotional uh, uh speech uh, probably a, quite a few. And the fact that, you know, we see this playing out in real time on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, it doesn't look like Dwayne's box office appeal is, is waning any, if anything, if anything growing. Same thing goes for Jericho, who's, you know, you always see on, you know, rubbing elbows with Paul Stanley or Gene Simmons or, you know, uh, uh geezer Butler, or, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, uh, you know, Pretty cool, I, and, and I would also add, much deserved. Uh, I've always believed that professional wrestlers, uh, especially those that were good at it, uh, were incredibly uh, gifted entertainers and athletes, uh, that they you know, do the best. Like I've always said, uh, I can't imagine some NFL lineman take, the, take the, the top of the line in the NFL. I can't imagine him remembering his lines and cues exactly on 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 spot nor can i imagine any actor uh take the top steps being on the planet i can't imagine any actor uh tom hardy uh being able to go out and 
you know, legitimately get thrown around, you know, like the wrestlers do and remember his lines and be able to give as good the performances as he typically does. Uh, although I will say it seems like there's one actor that has taken a, a page from the franchise. There's one actor that's pretty damn good at throwing the F-bomb around. <laughs> so, uh, so you see wrestling has wrestling has poured over into the mainstream culture and the mainstream world stage in more ways than one <laughs> you ever get annoyed when like michaels or, or hall or somebody used to say oh franchise you know he cursed too much uh, that's how he got over in ecw <laughs> that ever bother you when like somebody says something like that because not in, exactly entirely true Ah, fuck them. <laughs> it, uh, no, honestly, it, it just shows you how how uh, little they understood, A, how bad they had made the product uh, where they were, uh, that they had gone to cartoon land so far, they weren't even aware of it, that, what, that they had any inkling of understanding of what ECW was. Uh, when I was up there in 96, uh, Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson, uh, would ask me every television taping questions about ECW. Why the tables? Why the barbed wire? Why the chairs? Why this? Why that? But notably, Vince McMahon never used the letters. He never spoke the letters ECW to me. He would always say, when you were in the minor league, when you were in the bingo hall company, when you were in the small pond, when you were in the blood and guts company, he would use you know, backhanded euphemisms like that every time. Uh, funny, when you look back and you see the Attitude Era, uh, it seemed like somebody was paying attention. And now I know why he was asking me those questions every time he saw me. Um, but, you know, that that Michaels and uh, Scott or whoever else would think that that's all my promos were, uh, they need to go back and watch my promos because uh, they were, there was always a story told in them. Uh, and I did it all with no teleprompter. Isn't that amazing? Uh, that... I had complete control over those uh, promos and that character was meant to be as unredeeming a character, as crass a character as possible. And, you know, I've never met a crass jerk off that uh, said, gosh, darn it, or dad gummit. Uh, you know, it, the one thing that ECW did was we brought back that element of believability. Uh, I don't think that anybody was watching WWE in 1990, 91, 92, 93 and saying, boy, gosh darn it, this looks really believable. Uh, uh, and that was something that they had allowed to dissipate from their product. Um, ECW brought that back in spades. They have often told people, uh, Bruno, Jim Martino was one that didn't get it, uh, was not a fan didn't get it, uh, but he didn't like a lot of the later stuff that came. He was a purist to where he had come from in the business. I understand that. But uh, the way I've often described it is if you have a compendium, you know, a scale from, you know, left to right being 10 degrees, uh, five above the midpoint, five below the midpoint. Uh, if that was a scale of believability, the WWF then had dropped down pretty far to the left uh, of unbelievability and, you know, uh, you know, an evil hockey player, goon, uh, a, a, there's nothing worse than an evil garbage man. Uh, <laughs> Cause every neighborhood has one of those. Um, 
you know, a, a guy with seven PhDs and he's about 30, 35 years old. Let's see, a PhD takes how much time to get? And, uh, you know, a fifth grader can do the math and figure out it's cornball. Uh, so ECW couldn't just come back up to the, to the midpoint. We couldn't just bring it back to the midpoint and say, okay, we're a little bit different from them, but we're going to give you better matches or whatever. We had to take it far to the right, uh, way past the midpoint to bring to, to get those naysayers because remember the business had been just like it is now where the, the numbers had waned uh, the, the numbers were waning then fans were jettisoning the business they were leaving the business in droves to get those people back the three of us if it was a Saturday night or a Friday night and WWF was coming to town chances are pretty unlikely that we'd be at the WWF show we'd probably be down at the bar uh, you know maybe someplace else but we wouldn't be at the at the, the local WWF show, but if ECW came, much like if UFC came now, we would damn well be at that because we grew up wrestling fans. We outgrew the cartoon, and now here's this product. Uh, you, you know, you can't take the franchise's uh, crassness and its vulgarity and profanity and say, "Well, just as a snapshot, we're going to make a comment on that." Uh, you have to look at it in the overall of the environment that, that character was in. And the larger uh, universe that that character was performing in, where the industry had moved so far to cornball cartoons that we in ECW had to bring it so much further past uh, what it used to be towards believability, uh, towards realism, because, quite frankly, they had dropped the ball, uh, they being the WWF. And uh, they had, you know, at that point, were losing their asses. That's... Uh, right on the cusp of when uh, WCW started making their run and their buildup towards the you know the uh, 83 week run uh, when when uh, Bischoff was heading it up and and, and, and they beat the WWF. Uh, it wasn't just ECW. Uh, the wrestling fans all over the world had seen that the WWF product had become a fucking joke, and uh, for better or for worse, the people that were performing there were being painted with that same brush. Uh, so uh, I stand by everything I said. I, I, I look back at it sometimes and I think, ooh, man, he was pretty vulgar. Uh, but can very quickly tell myself, because I lived it, what, where was the industry at that time? Where, uh, uh, where were the fans going at that time? It wasn't to a WWF show. It was out the door, leaving the business. And to bring those fans back, we had to make it a very adult themed show to get them back into the building. And the franchise's promos were uh, obviously on partial, but I would say that there was a little bit more to them than just vulgarity. There was a hell of a lot of story told in them, uh, a lot further to every angle that I was in. Uh, another example of how they just didn't get it and still don't get it. At that point in the 90s, with the WBF obviously struggling a bit, even at that point, there was nobody ever to run MSG outside of WWE, which is interesting. WCW at one point was supposed to run it in November 94, and then I guess Vince basically said, if you, you, know, you run that building, uh, you know, you're going to lose us. 
forever and you know we're like we're the mainstay so WCW was supposed to have Hogan versus Flair Flair had this whole retirement angle so the match never ended up happening but supposedly Vince behind the scenes really blocked it obviously WCW was at the Paramount Theater across the street but there was never anybody that won an MSG now it kind of brings me to today it's yes the stock is at $62 it's you know it's an all-time high they're doing great financially but business-wise MSG isn't happy with them and uh, Really, um, attendance-wise, they aren't doing great. Uh, Ratings-wise, they really aren't doing that great. But I just wanted to mention to you real quickly and briefly, Ring of Honor says that they are running MSG in 2019. And I just wanted to get your take on that because never even in the, the dead days of the, of the WWF did they even have to worry about the huge WCW or the you know almost going to become huge WWF running MSG. What are your thoughts on, on now where they're saying that another wrestling organization is going to run the hollowed Madison Square Garden. Are they running the main hall? Yes. I was reading an interview today with the CEO of Sinclair and says, somebody mentioned the, the theater or whatever at MSG. He said, no, that they're in talks to run actual Madison Square Garden. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, there's several things that pop into my head immediately. First of all, the WWF used to always have uh, they had contracts with all their major venues, the MSG being one of them, uh, that uh, they nobody could run a show so many weeks or months in advance of that show or so many weeks or months after that show. And which meant pretty much that they had, you know, eight or ten shows a year there, they pretty much locked the building down. Uh, when you get into that kind of predatory move, I would think by now, somebody just a threat of a legal challenge because it would certainly lose in court uh you you'd have to prove that this was going to do tangible damage to your business uh and you know you'd have to show some really ironclad at exclusivity clause with the I, I you know some form of ownership of the building or, or something of that nature uh i don't see how that kind of a contract would stand up today because you're basically telling other entities that they're not allowed to use a public building uh, as long as they pay the rent, uh, as long as, you know, they do what they're supposed to do on their side. It's pretty difficult to say you can't uh, run here because this other company runs here and they don't allow you. Uh, you know, I think you'd, you'd run into a pretty thin ice, uh, legally speaking, and trying to do that. Uh, it'll be fascinating to see, but, I, but the other the other part of that is, to me, like you mentioned on the lead-in, JP, that uh, you know we're all aware of the, the house show attendance averaging close to 12,000 just five or six years ago now at 5,600 and dropping. Uh, the per-head merchandise sales used to be nearly $37 per night uh, per head. Uh, now it's uh, down below $11, closer to $10 per head. Uh the television ratings down. I always love Vince's uh, Mia Culpa in that. Well, television ratings are down across the board, which is true. They're down about 10%. Uh, the WWFs are down about 90, 95% from uh, 15, 20 years ago. So, uh, you know, but still, in, in light of all that, <laughs> he was able to sell the rights to SmackDown and Raw for jaw dropping amounts, billions of dollars. Uh, between the two entities. It's just astounding. Uh, but I would dare say that 
if I were a fly in the wall, that that came up someplace. That you know, Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, anytime I was ever in there, that was a sellout, twenty-five thousand people, and uh, I'm sure it hadn't been that for some time. So I'm, I'm guessing the garden is probably looking at that as well. You know, they're not getting any part of that 1.2 billion from Fox or the two billion or whatever it is from uh, NBC Universal. So they need to put other things in there. They have bills to pay too, overhead. So my guess is that what's what was once an ironclad agreement between the WWF, WWE, and Madison Square Garden uh, probably ain't so ironclad anymore. Uh, and probably something that, you know, that the, the Madison Square Garden is probably not ready to go to court over to fight because of those declining numbers uh, on the WWE's part. Now, I'm going to forego the AFA, the franchise, anything, just because a little bit of a, of a special week, especially for us as a power trip, and especially for Shane, because you always mention this guy on our show, and you always say, you know, his famous quote, he's going to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. And obviously, mm-hmm. the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, passed away this week, three years ago, and we had the privilege and the honor of doing his last ever interview. And I always say it's a little bit of a, a bittersweet uh, feeling whenever this comes around, obviously, you know, saddened by his death. But the thing is, like, oh, I can't believe we got to interview him. You know, we were hoping that was just part one. And, you know, you just think back, like, wow, we got the interview. I'm like, wow, we got his last ever interview. It's it's pretty surreal, and it's and it's pretty crazy. Obviously, he's going to be the, one of the biggest names we've ever interviewed, and that can go on, you know, for as long as we do it, he'll be one of the biggest names we ever interviewed. He's just that big of a star. But what are your memories right. and your reflections and your thoughts on the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes? Well, a ton of them, obviously. Uh, uh, I, I learned a lot more from Dusty than I had imagined at the time, uh, young in my career. Because Dusty was uh, the booker, uh, pretty much for most of the time I was there, especially as a young guy, uh, you know, with, with uh, Johnny Ace and the Dynamic Dudes. Uh, and even before that, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dusty Rhodes was like the guy, you know, and then the NWA and initially in WCW that, you know, every guy in a pair of boots and tights wants to be up that card faster, move up the card faster. And, uh, and Dusty, uh, there was a saying that Dusty could talk to Chrome off a bumper hitch. Uh, you know, he was so compelling and so believable uh there was a story uh this was in st louis at the old keel auditorium uh i had just done my you know know, like the last six months of my tax receipts and you know my paychecks and had you know pretty much balanced out how much i had made and how much i had spent on the road and when i came to the realization that i had spent eleven hundred dollars more than i had made and that mortified me. Uh, I just couldn't imagine that. And that night we were in St. Louis at the Kill Auditorium, and I went to Dusty and I said, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to you, Dusty." It was in a you know abbreviated version. What I said was, "Look, I, I'm an educated guy. I can go home and get a job. Uh, if there's no room or no money here for me, I you know just you know just tell me, and I, I no problem. I'll leave." And he, he you know, such a tremendous. Uh, psychologist he 
slid down the bench, put his arm around me. And he said, no kid, no kid. We got big plans for you. And, uh, you know, really convinced me to stay. And, uh, you know, it was a couple more years before I started making real money in the business. But, you know, I was fully prepared to walk out, uh, you know, of the industry at that point. Not that I didn't love it or that I didn't want to stay, but I couldn't see staying and doing the job that I was losing money at, that I was spending money to do, uh, especially the rigors of being on the road. It's a pretty tough thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think that Dusty knew that uh, I, I was an up-and-coming guy. I still had things to learn and convinced me to stay, albeit not, not in the most genuine of ways, but, you know, convinced me to convince myself to stay in the business. And, uh, you know, that was Dusty you know, on the professional level. One of the things I'll say about Dusty on the personal level was, you know, I've met a lot of people, a lot of famous people. Um, uh, in the business, there are only three people that I know had the gifts that, uh, that Dusty did. And I'm, I don't mean that to be equal, but uh, Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, and Hulk Hogan are the three people that I've seen that have a charisma that precedes them. So before they walk into the room, you can feel them coming. And once they're in the room, you could be in the back of the bar with your with a 300 people in the bar, music playing, your back turned to the to the door, and when they walk in, you feel them. They're, 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 you know, this charisma comes squeezing into the room and stifles out, you know, all the other ambient noise. Uh, you know, they just uh, they just ooze it. Um, and Dusty had such a, an aura about him. Uh, you know, if, if, if you had never watched wrestling and you met Dusty, you knew he was somebody. You know, he just, he just had that charisma and that way of carrying himself. Uh, and then, you know, back to the professional side, his knowledge of the business was so deep uh, that you know, on character development, on building angles, creating and building angles, uh, bringing those angles to fruition and then dumping gasoline on them, taking them even higher. Uh, Dusty was as good at that as anybody in the business, uh, if not the best, clearly one of the top three uh, in, in my span of the business. Um, but I, I, I would say, personally, I would say Dusty was probably number one uh, because he had done he had done it for so long. It's like, it's like being a wrestler, you know, after a certain point, no matter what goes wrong in the ring, you feel comfortable enough and professional enough to fix it. Uh, no matter what happened in a promotion, uh, Dusty had enough ability to look around that dressing room and say, okay, well, the franchise isn't over as much as it used to be. So who, who else do we need to build up and put up in that position next? He could look around that dressing room and in 30 seconds say, okay, that's the guy. Uh, and you know, and, and be right on it. Uh, he, he just had a such a focus on the business. Um, you know, when he died a couple of years ago, I, I three years ago, I, I when I got the phone call, I I didn't know he'd been sick. I had seen him at the NWA convention not long before that, and he had lost the weight. But I thought he was just losing the weight, and you know, he actually I thought he looked good. You know that he, he looked healthy, and. Uh, you know, you know, since we've heard the stories and things, you know, about the treatment he was undergoing and whatever, uh, you know, I just thought when he died that day, when I heard that that day, I thought, boy, what a giant, you know, gone. You know, it's, you know, losing Bruno was 
like I, I've said a million times, like losing the Babe Ruth of our business. But, uh, you know, uh, if that's the case, then I would say that uh, Dusty was part of the Ty Cobb uh, uh, of our industry. Uh, you know, just you can't understate his impact on the business. And, you know, a, a huge amount of what you see in sports entertainment today stems off the legitimacy that was Dusty Rhodes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's why every year we we take one show and we dedicate it fully to the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes, and we'll be doing that in a few weeks on the Two Man Power Trip. We've got a great show planned. It's uh, it's always a lot of fun to look back on that interview that we had with him, albeit very short. But thirty minutes with the Dream is a lifetime uh, in terms of what we were able to accomplish post that interview, and we owe it all to uh, Dusty Rhodes, and we do not shy away from saying that um, he made us that one day for for albeit something as simple as an interview. It uh it really made us uh what what we are in terms of that podcast and even including being able to do this with you Shane now for fifty one shows moving forward to a big episode number fifty two and, and as we get to wrap it up here we move to episode fifty two you got my interest peaked you got John's interest peaked that we don't know what's on the other side of next week's episode but we're looking forward to it but before we get to that episode before we get to uh, another exciting installment of this Triple Threat podcast. You got a lot of stuff going on in your world. So, Shane, where are you going to be this weekend doing uh, the franchise's uh, dirty work out there in the wrestling business? Heading back down to Louisiana this weekend uh, uh, to uh, make another appearance down there. Uh, going to be going uh, doing some radio work for that on Thursday. Looking forward to that. I, I always love getting back down to uh, Louisiana and the Baton Rouge area because, uh, you know, it's where I cut my teeth in the business with the UWF. So it's always like, you know, going home sort of, so to speak. Uh, so I'll be down there this weekend, uh, getting ready for, uh, some, uh, other professional things next month. Uh, so, you know, getting, uh, getting my, uh, dogs and ponies, uh, lined up, uh, you know, getting everything in order and, have a lot of work leading up to that. So, uh, and and this weekend, rumor has it is uh, is a day for us fathers, for us three fathers sitting on here that that we get that one day out of the year where we don't have to cut the grass. So, <laughs> it's, uh, looking forward to this Sunday as well. Spend some time with my boys. Don't have to cut the grass, but the hedges need to be trimmed and the windows need to be washed <laughs> and uh, all the other great stuff that uh, that us fathers have to do. But also, we want to remind everybody here, we talked about Legends of the Ring earlier in the show, but uh, we've talked about it the last couple of weeks, the, the new franchise action figure that's available from the Figures Inc. company at WrestlingSuperstore.com. And Shane, you know, we saw it come up right up to the table. I was, uh, it was so nice to see it in person, but that franchise action figure is pretty damn sharp. And if you haven't gotten your hands on it yet... Um, was hearing some interesting stats on how many of them they make and how many uh, how many things they actually go with putting these these figures out in these lines. But Shane, seeing it in person, it's so impressive uh, to see it, and the fans obviously love it because this guy who brought it up, he he was raving over this figure. Yeah, I, what I liked about it was, that, and I was surprised that nobody's ever done it before because it's not a very difficult thing to do, but to put the actual fringe on the boots uh, as opposed to uh, a molded part of the plastic uh, uh, in the previous action figures. Uh, and they also uh, got the uh, tattoo right, at least one of them. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that's pretty cool as well. And, uh, you know, the fact that it gives the fans 
uh, a pretty cool new piece of memorabilia uh, to bring to conventions like Legends of the Ring and uh, you know the other others will be coming up to. Uh, it, it, it's to me, it's a pretty cool thing for them. I mean, you can see their excitement. I think Lucas was the guy uh, that brought the uh, first one to the table this weekend and posted something on Twitter about it. So uh, it's always cool when you see that so, that a fan is uh, so interested in your career and and you know your your on screen persona that they're willing to go out and buy a piece of memorabilia like that and then come and find you to to, to get it signed. Uh, so you know anybody that's looking for one, uh, you can grab it at the. Uh, at their website, uh, Figure Story Company website, and you know, bring it on by and get it signed. Uh, uh, but it's always cool, you know. Even even now, after all these years, it's still pretty cool to see yourself as a uh, as an action figure for you. for somebody. Uh, like I said, that read comic books so much whenever I was a kid. Uh, you know, pretty pretty cool for me still. Somewhere, somebody's out there having the franchise team up uh, with Captain America and uh, Batman and the Flash, and you guys are. Are having some kind of Justice League uh, meeting some somewhere out there in the world? I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. What's what's that show on the uh, on one of those comedy channels where they have the action figures uh, and the different toys and stuff playing? Uh, some sometime sooner or later, the franchise action figure is going to make it on that show, and and I uh, will have finally arrived. <laughs> <laughs> and first of all, we all know you would probably turn on them uh, midway through whatever the uh, the plan was going to be. So we. <laughs> We know how that franchise action figure is, but also if you want to get your hands on the other hot pieces of uh, franchise merchandise out there, you can go to Shane's P Pro Wrestling Tea Store, which is ProWrestlingTees.com slash franchise SD. And again, another hot commodity at the convention was the franchise shirts. Uh, I mean, I can't get enough of them. I wear them every single day. My uh, my move was sponsored by the franchise. I wore a new franchise shirt every time <laughs> I picked up a box. But uh, you can head over to the Pro Wrestling Tees website or you can go to the two-man power trip website, which is tmptofwrestling.com. And there you can go right to the Triple Threat podcast link. You can get the show downloads. You can get our YouTube pages. And you can connect to us on social media through Twitter at the franchise SD and at two-man power trip. And send in your Ask Franchise Anything questions to the Triple Threat pod at gmail.com and you mentioned one other convention and that's coming up in just a few weeks the fanboy convention in tennessee where you will have the honor of being alongside the beautiful and talented francine so you are a lucky duck there shane so let's uh let's move on let's get over to episode 52 well you know what just real quick side note that will be the first time that francine and i appeared together since 2007 uh you know, we were both at WrestleCon this year, but we were at different tables. Uh, fanboy convention in Knoxville next weekend uh, will be the first time in 11 years uh, that Franny and I have, uh, have appeared together. So anybody in the Knoxville area is going to uh, want to swing by and say hello and come down and check that out. But I'm looking forward to it. Hey, it's it's uh, I had a good time with you guys this past weekend, but you guys are Francine. You guys are Francine. What to do? What to do? Which one do I pick? Uh, so no, it's going to be a lot of fun in uh, Knoxville. So that's uh, coming up in less than two weeks, week and a half. Yep. And then next week, the big episode number fifty-two. Can't wait for that. Looking forward to it. I love the milestone shows because they're uh, they always mean the most. And outside of uh, you know putting each other over like crazy, which I'm sure we'll do. 
I'm sure you've got a lot up your <laughs> sleeve. So Shane, take us out here on episode 51 and let's get it on the road to episode 52, the one year anniversary of the Triple Threat Podcast. One, one week shy of the big one year anniversary. Remember, I don't get many of these this time in my life. Haven't had an anniversary in years. It's next week, the big one year anniversary. And don't forget the big secret super kayfabe guest that's going to be here. Trust me, the person's going to knock your socks off. You're going to be shocked when you hear who it is. Uh, so make sure you tune in. And I will let you guys know next week as we lead into number 52 for the one year anniversary. I will let you podcast partners know who the special guest is. Uh, until then, have a great week. Make sure you catch 52 or get your ass franchise. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.